Why do you say that, Father? You aren't afraid, are you? No. But I respect some of the superstitions of others. Often they are founded in fact. Broadcasting live from our Sanctum Sanctorum in Venice, California. This is the Sixth Sense Society. I'm your host, Krista, here with our producer, Michael. And today, on our last show of this year, we are welcoming back Lama Kathy Wesley. And for those of you who have not listened to her or heard her on our show before, which I highly recommend, she is a student of Kempo Carter Rinpoche since 1977, and she actually participated in the first three-year retreat led by Kempo Rinpoche at Carmeling Retreat Center in upstate New York, and thus earned the title of Retreat Lama. She is currently the resident teacher of the Columbus KTC, and I think she's a perfect guest to have on to talk about the topic of teacher-student since she's been on both sides of it, and not everybody is in the Buddhist community, so she can see both sides, and I think she's going to bring a lot of experience and knowledge to the show, so I'm really excited about it, and I think it's a really important topic. But before we get started, Michael has a few announcements. Hi, everybody. And yes, this is our last show of the year. We'll be taking a little bit of a break in December and then coming back in January. And we're going to have a whole bunch of new shows starting on the 4th. Um, and one of the things we're going to do in January, we're going to have a roundtable of our, our astrology and psychic friends, and numerologists, and we're going to look at 2022 and try and make some prediction. And so that'll be a lot of fun. So you guys want to check in and tune into that. Um, get the information on our website, sixcentsociety.com. As we get things scheduled, we'll post things up there. Um, and while you're there, buy us a coffee on Ko-Fi. We've set a, a goal of getting enough together to buy a couple of new cameras to replace some of our older ones, which are working, but not as good as the newer ones. So we're hoping we can upgrade our quality a little bit. Um, so if you can afford it, you know, buy us a coffee or two, please. We would really appreciate it. Um, and subscribe to our newsletter. But the best thing you can do for the show is hit click and like and subscribe on YouTube. And uh, that really may, makes a lot to us and means a lot and really helps the show. So that's one of the small things you guys can all do that really benefits us. So I don't want to take up too much more of your time. So I hope you guys all have a good holidays. And I'm going to kick it back to you, Krista. So take it away, Krista. Great. Thanks so much, Michael. And welcome, Kathy. Hey, thank you for having me on the show. Oh, I'm always thrilled when you come back. And we, you know, I think you are a nice mix of uh, grounded experience and humor uh, and great stories. I love a lot of your stories. So thank you for coming back. Uh, no, it's, it's, you know, I think that spiritual life is so important to everyone. And I think that anything we can do to keep each other encouraged, especially during difficult times, it's, it's a really, it's a great service. So thank you for the service that you and Michael are doing for everyone by keeping us going during this time. Well, keeps us going. <laughs> That's for sure. Doing this show has really helped. So um, yeah, this topic I think is important to me for sure. And I know it is for you. So I'm going to let you go ahead and decide where you'd like to start with it. I think that, um, if we go back in history, let's just talk about history for a minute. Um, everybody uh, who gets into some form of spiritual life needs guidance at some point in their life, whether they get that guidance from um, such uh, what I would call relative reality uh, formats, such as uh, I Ching or uh, tarot or uh, astrology or whatever whatever, there's always a place that we need guidance where we just aren't quite sure what our next step should be either in life or, but especially in spiritual training in life. And so I think that it's a natural feeling for us to want to have someone to guide us, especially if we're feeling a little bit unsure of ourselves 
and a little bit unsure of our path, it, it really is helpful to have someone who has been on the path before us, who can warn us about dangers on the path, can warn us about the pitfalls, but can also give us some insight into ourselves that sometimes we're not ready to know yet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, so, uh, and so I think that throughout human history, teachers have been really important. And if we look at the life of the Buddha, the historical Buddha, Shakyamuni, if we look at his life, even in his life, he had a number of, of human teachers. He had a number of teachers who gave him yoga instructions, who gave him meditation instruction, and he followed those instructions as far as they could take him. Mm-hmm. And he was able to accomplish his, uh, his enlightenment or Buddhahood or his awakening from, from the, sorry, he awakened from the sleep of ignorance about the nature of reality. And he was able to do this because of something that his music teacher had told him. So you can imagine that, uh, that when he was still Prince Siddhartha and seeking on the path, he got all of this great advice from the great spiritual minds of his day, but he was unable to achieve the depth of meditation that he needed to after six long years. Mm. So what he did was he relaxed his mind a little And in that moment of relaxation, he remembered a music lesson that he had had from a music teacher who said, if you're learning to play the lute, if it is too tight, if the string is too tight, it won't sound. And if the string is too loose, it'll have a bad sound. So you have to tune it perfectly in the middle. And then when that string is tuned perfectly to the middle, then you will get a beautiful sound. And so he realized that he had been pushing too hard on his mind to ambitiously try to reach some kind of depth depth in his meditation. And so he took many steps to relax his environment, relax his mind, relax his being, and then he attained awakening. So even, even even the great minds needed teachers. I love the story about the music teacher. I did not know that. In fact, uh, in my own life, I had two music teachers that were spiritual teachers for me as well because of the advice they gave me. So that's an interesting uh, correlation. And also that you never know when a teaching is going to ripen in a person's mind, it sounds like. You know, like at that point, that's when he remembered his music teacher. Yeah. And and, and I think that all of us have sort of... um all of us who have an interest in spiritual life in the inner life, all of us who have that kind of interest, we have some intuitive understanding of what we need to do and some intuitive understanding of what we need to be and where we need to go and what we, how we should study. But it only that even the intuitive sense will only take us so far because there's unknown territory as we try to discover ourselves, whether it's our path, where we try to discover our path, whether we, as the Buddha did, are trying to understand the essence and the nature of mind and consciousness itself. There's some uncharted territory that we have, even even though we've maybe lived many, many uh, reincarnations, (laughs) lifetimes, right? Even though, according to the Buddha, we've lived many, many lifetimes, we still haven't achieved this spiritual enlightenment yet. So as long as we have not yet achieved that, we're going to need to have that kind of guidance. So intuition will take us to a certain de- uh, depth and breadth, but then we have to begin to seek that guidance. Now, from my own experience working in the metaphysical world over the many, many years, I have heard a lot of what I consider misunderstanding about the guru. And what the guru really is and how the guru operates. And you know, maybe I'm, I'm fortunate because I did meet Kempo Rinpoche. He's really my first introduction. So I was lucky that when I was only 23. And then some of the other teachers. So that, that my first impression was quite different from what a lot of people think of that the guru is going to take over your life and that you have to be subservient. And I remember thinking like, well, that never happened to me. <laughs> Said, of anything... I had interviews with Kempo Rinpoche where he would actually, uh, one of the things I found about Kempo Rinpoche, because he was a, a wise teacher, is he worked with my personality really well, and I didn't have a lot of confidence. So he would 
help me make decisions on my own about mm-hmm. even some of the practices. Like he he recognized what would be healing for me, I thought, you know, because of it was very healing to have someone like that be um, so gentle and kind. And so I think that that you were talking about how earlier teachers are there also to help recognize things in you. And it's not necessarily, in my experience, something bad in you. In fact, in the opposite, in my mind, was he saw the merit that I might see in myself, I didn't see in myself, and he would try to encourage it out. Mm-hmm. This is so true. Uh, and I think your experience is um, is uh, uh, a testament to Kempo Kartha Rinpoche's talent and his gift, his giftedness as a teacher, in that for many, uh, for many spiritual teachers, they are quite directive, which is what we hear about. We hear about the the uh, the examples like the ancient Indian guru, Buddhist guru Tilopa who uh, had uh, a student who was a college professor named Naropa. And Naropa had a lot of book learning, but he didn't have a lot of faith and devotion. So Tilopa created circumstances and created things artificially that would teach Naropa something important. And it was always about reducing his pride and reducing his arrogance because he had been such a big Buddhist college professor, that when he started studying with Tilopa, who was a very simple yogi, that it was really tough for him to actually accept the teachings from Tilopa. So Tilopa said, well, if I had a student, he would go over there at that wedding party and he would steal the soup from that wedding party and bring it back to me. And so Naropa then said, okay, I guess I have to do exactly what he says, or I won't get the blessing. So he went and he stole the soup and then he was beaten up and then he was in a pile. And then he said to Tilopa, who happened to be coming along, oh, I'm in pain. I'm a corpse. And uh, Tilopa said, oh, nonsense. And he touched him and healed him and then brought him back to uh, back to wholeness and then took him to his next adventure and in whole and in all he accomplished 12 different hardships that worked on different aspects of uh naropa's uh selfishness and various aspects of his uh pride but these days in modern times these kinds of teachers they don't operate they don't operate like this. They are more collaborative. Mm-hmm. Like Kempo Kartha Rinpoche was very collaborative. He he knew a little bit about our affect. He could look at us and know instantly kind of what kind of person we were and what we would benefit from. And so he would guide us in a more much more collaborative way, but he would still deliver some of those hard lessons Uh, in a way that was uh, palatable for us. Mm -hmm. You know, he would say something like, uh, well, one time uh, after, after we had been, I'd been his student for uh, quite a long time. And I was um, starting to teach myself after three-year retreat. And, uh, and he said, he gave me advice, you know, how to listen and how to respond to people. And then he said, and don't think you have to, to protect the Buddha. And I'm like, what? And it's like, he said, you, he said, I've seen you. He said, you get impatient when people say things that are critical of the Dharma, you need to stop that. And I'm like, (laughs) you know, so, and you know, that was a, that was like a, that was a weeper for me because he really saw that I had this, this sort of prideful feeling about being a Buddhist Mm. and, and I would be critical mentally and verbally toward people who said things that were in, that were contrary to Dharma. He said, your job is not to fix that. Your job is to be with that and be present with that and be patient with that. Mm. Then he said, you can overcome everyone and everything with the proper practice of patience Mm. that so that so i learned like two lessons that day. i saw a piece of myself that i wasn't quite ready to look at but i also heard about the value of patience so that's a great story right 
Yeah, that's that's a great story. Now, um, there are um, people people don't realize that there are teachings on picking the the right teacher, but also the whole relationship between the teacher and students. So I didn't really know until afterwards. Actually, <laughs> later I remember finding out, saying, "Oh, there's like a whole book on this," <laughs> and and probably more. So um, so let's yeah. maybe go into some of that. Sure. I, I first first things first. I'll share a verse that um, from um, from this book, uh, which is I'm I'm sorry it's out of print, but I will provide you with a link to 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 read a copy. It's called the Thirty Seven Practices of a Bodhisattva, and uh, this particular commentary is by uh, Kempo Sultram Jamso, who himself. Uh, until he retired a few years ago, was a, just an amazing teacher who taught in all kinds of styles. Um, but uh, verse number six of the 37 really sort of summarizes what the teacher and student relationship is like. Uh, it, it actually, it starts on verse five because it, it's about how to, how to get, make, get yourself distant from bad friends. Mm. So verse number five is when friendship with someone causes your three poisons to increase, and that's attachment, aversion, and bewilderment. When friendship with someone causes your three poisons to increase and degrades the activities of listening, reflecting, and meditating on the Dharma and destroys your loving kindness and compassion to give up such a friendship is the practice of a bodhisattva. And so this is not telling us we have to be perfect today, but it's telling us what to look out for and how to choose your bad friends. And I mean, how to identify bad friends. Mm. And then in verse six, he says, well, how do, you, how do you identify a good friend? When in reliance on someone, your defects wane and your positive qualities grow like the waxing moon to cherish such a spiritual friend more than your own body is the practice of a bodhisattva. Well, you know, we're not going to be treasuring people more than our own body just now, but by giving us this example of a person who by reliance on their advice, our own defects begin to wane and our positive qualities begin to wax like the waxing moon. Mm. I, to me, that's, that's the summary of, of the value of spiritual teachers is that there's someone who help us to distance ourselves from our negative habits and to increase our positive habits. But I, I totally agree with that. I, you know, I was, I was pretty young when I would go in for my interviews with Kempo Rinpoche and for whatever reason, uh, I mean, I was just completely honest with him, whatever was going on. And, and I didn't have any filters, um, which I know is a good thing, but it wasn't anything I, I, I thought ahead of doing. And I, mm -hmm. I remember um, he gave me some really, really good advice just as a person to help me in my life. And, and once in a while, there were some stern things, like around love especially. He once said to me that I was too, I was too impulsive and I needed to be more practical. And then he told me that love took many, many years. And it really stuck with me. And, it, and honestly, I think I was ready to hear that because it didn't upset me that much. I was like, oh, okay. I didn't think about being practical in love, <laughs> you know? But, um, but when the, the, even when I had left um, Tibetan Buddhism and to study some other things, I always felt a connection to Kempo Rinpoche. And so I did want to talk a little bit about you know, in at least Tibetan Buddhism, there is this concept of the root lama, the, mm -hmm. the, the main teacher that you have learned, you know, maybe most of what you've learned from in, in this one life. And then there'll be other teachers, but that you feel this special connection to, because I would say that is, even though I'm a terrible practitioner, I'm lazy and I, you know, argue with certain things in my mind philosophically, I have always felt this connection to Kempo Rinpoche 
throughout my life. And so I know that that's to him, he's my root teacher. So I'd like you to sort of explain what that is, because I think that's another thing people get sort of outside think again, that there's misunderstandings about that, I think. I, I agree. And I, and I think that this is part, part of the reason why, um, uh, uh, podcasts like this are so important. And that is because we get the opportunity to share what we have learned in our own life and also to find out what other people are thinking about. But um, I uh, received a number of teachings about teachers from my teachers. And so I, I have maybe three teachings that I've received that just really stuck with me about the whole teacher and student relationship. And one of them has to do with this matter of, um, of who are your branch teachers and who are your root teachers. And um, one of my lamas said, if you don't have a teacher right now, don't be desperate. <laughs> You know, don't be desperate. Don't say, oh, I must find one. You know, don't be desperate. Just do your practice. Just do your spiritual practice. If it's meditation, meditate and so on. Just do your your spiritual practice. And that spiritual practice will create inside of you an atmosphere of virtue. And that atmosphere of virtue that you create inside yourself by doing your spiritual practice this is what he said, will come to fruition as meeting different teachers. So your good karma from doing your practice will ripen as the presence of different teachers in your life. And from among those teachers, you will find some whose advice really helps you. And those will become your branch teachers, like the branches of a tree. And then from among those branch teachers, you will develop relationships with someone whose advice, their advices uh, help you the very most. And those will be your root teachers. And my teacher, Kempo Karthar Rinpoche, told me that the teacher who makes the biggest difference in your mind is your main root teacher. That's the, that is the person who is, um, who will always be that sort of, um, that anchor for you, that root essentially of your virtue and of your uh, spiritual practice. So I like the, the sort of organic description of meditate first, that comes to fruition as meeting teachers. And from among those teachers, you meet some advice, will, some of their advice will help you. Those are your branch teachers. And then from among that, your root teachers will emerge. And what's cool about this is that, is that it's very organic. It's not like forced mm -hmm. because uh, there's a saying that everybody likes to quote, which is when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. And uh, I, I heard that too, when I was a yoga student mm -hmm. and, uh, but, but, you know, it's like, I may or may not have been ready when Kemper Rinpoche appeared in my life also as a young person. But I knew instantly because of his um, overwhelming uh, power as an individual, he was very charismatic, but he was also very wise and very compassionate. So usually if some, oh, he was also strong, really strong. He had a real, you know, he had a real strong vibe to him, if you want to call that. And usually when somebody is strong, they're not gentle mm. or when they're gentle, they're not strong. Right. So the idea was that he had this gentle strength about him and that that was how I always thought of him that way. Cause he allowed, he allowed us to study in our own way and was collaborative with us and helped us to, uh, and he was helped us to anchor ourselves in pragmatism mm -hmm. and, uh, and so forth. But he also had this uh, almost, um, you experienced it obviously from your story, he had this almost, I'm going to bring Star Wars up, sorry, this almost <laughs> Jedi Knight uh, ability to say, these are not the droids you're looking for. You know, <laughs> the idea where he could, he could like tell you a hard truth and you would go, um, yeah, I could, <laughs> I can take that in. Yeah. And he did the same thing with me one time, also about relationships. And he said, you know, he made a definite statement to me and I'm like, well, yeah, now that I'm not quibbling about it in my own mind, I see the wisdom of that. So he, he just had this ability to kind of get in with the truth and have it um, not hurt too much. 
That that is really actually true. I I would say because it 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 was a pretty you know I was in a very romantic period, so it was a pretty direct statement. But it 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 was the way he did it. Is yeah. his uh, so I mean that that is true of teachers in general. That a very good teacher knows how to size up a student. I mean that that the. Um, this is one reason why I, I believe in the archetype of the teacher everywhere. Maybe because I've, I've had some bad teachers, but I've mostly had some amazing teachers that have profoundly touched my life. And, and I think sometimes I worry, like especially in the New Age movement, they say, oh, you know, once we're in the Aquarian age, which some people think we are, you won't need a teacher. It's all. And I oh. thought, what? <laughs> are you oh. crazy? And I said, well, perhaps the relationship with the teacher will change and grow in some new ways, like the co collaborative one really would be an Aquarian kind of thing. Uh, so that that is one reason why this topic, you know, means a lot to me, because I feel there's, I, I hear that kind of thought that, that, that we'll be spiritually awake on our own. And I, I think that's very arrogant. It, it, I think what it is, I, I think where this comes from is the very human distrust of authority and and there's plenty of reasons why human beings distrust authorities and uh and and because no one wants to give over their guidance to another person and then be fooled by or taken advantage of by another person so i think very wisely people have to size each other up in Tibetan texts, um, one of the texts that I uh, was uh, referring to earlier in the pre-show when we were chatting uh, was The Jewel Ornament of Liberation by Gampopa. This book was written uh, in the 12th century. And it, and it basically said that the student has to spend some time uh, evaluating the teacher on three specific qualities. Does the teacher uh, have learning? Does the teacher have spiritual qualities? And is the teacher compassionate? Learning qualities and compassion. And so if the teacher possesses these things, then, then you can take them as a teacher, but you have to evaluate them first and you can't just jump into it. And my own teacher said to me, if somebody comes up to you and says, I knew you in a past life and I was your teacher, he said, be a little bit suspicious about that, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, uh, and, you know, he, he said, uh, because uh, he said, that's not necessarily what's going to happen. And especially, he said, especially if a teacher comes up to you and tells you that they're enlightened, he said, have some, have some, uh, some concern about that because uh, the, the best teachers don't say that. Yeah, and, and, and that's true. And, and, and we do, I think it is important to look at some of the uh, misuses even in um, Buddhism that have come out through the years, and I'm certainly aware of them. There was actually a really good article recently in Tricycle, it was the summer of 2020, called Becoming Whole, and it was an interview with um, Werner Vogd. I don't know if that's V-O-G-D, how you pronounce his name, but he had been doing these interviews with students of Sogyo Rinpoche, and it turned out there was a lot of um, sexual, physical, emotional abuse. They were all reporting, and um, he's not the first one to have this uh, in the Buddhist community, and, and certainly when you um, think about the three qualities that you just talked about, then perhaps as students, we have to be aware of, of sort of looking, is this really spiritual behavior? Is this really compassionate? Uh, perhaps uh, because some of the these teachers are very learned. I mean, incredibly learned. It's, it's the, I can't even fathom what they have to memorize and learn to be in the positions they are, that perhaps that does somehow over people overlook things i think you know with very very learned people in general um so certainly we as students have uh, responsibilities too to notice and talk right. amongst each other even did that happen to you which i think would be important if it was like happening to everyone then you think okay there's something really wrong here mm -hmm. the the two stories that come to mind or the two teachers that come to mind uh who have given a really um intelligent uh, conversation about this. His Holiness the Dalai Lama, uh, a number of years ago, was addressing the question of teachers who end up uh, 
doing abusive things. And he said that you, when you walk into, when you go into a relationship with a teacher, he said, you go in with your eyes open. You, you don't check your common sense at the door. And I think that might've been a paraphrase, but you know, he said, you, you keep your common sense, you keep your wits about you and then watch the behavior and see whether that behavior accords with the Dharma or not. And I think that that is, and, and he said, if you see something, say something. This was what he, um, the Dalai Lama said a number of years ago about this. And the other teacher um, who gave advice on this topic was um, the uh, very venerable uh, Trangu Rinpoche. Uh, that's spelled uh, T-H-R-A-N-G-U. And you can look him up uh, online. He has a wonderful website. Uh, Rinpoche.com, and it's full of great teachings. And I actually think there's a teaching in there on uh, the teacher-student relationship. But what he said was, he said, all teachers, all teachers are a mixture of qualities and faults. All teachers are a mixture of qualities and faults. He said, our job as a student is to choose a teacher who has relatively more qualities than faults and to practice the teacher's qualities mm-hmm. and not to practice the teacher's faults. And I think that really made a lot of sense to me. Mm-hmm. Choose a teacher with relatively more qualities than faults and practice those qualities and not practice the faults. And so he, he came at the subject from the, the standpoint that every one of us is a mixture of qualities and faults. Mm-hmm. And as such, we have to use our discriminating wisdom and our discriminating awareness and, and so forth to, to really make that judgment for ourselves. It's like the Dalai Lama said, don't check your common sense at the door mm-hmm. and then see whether people's actions and words match. And that's even discussed, uh, I believe that's discussed in detail in the other book I'm, re- I'm recommending, which is The Teacher and Student Relationship by Jamgun Kantrol. Uh, this, uh, this idea of the list of the qualities that teachers need to have as opposed to the faults that you should watch out for. Uh, this, is, uh, this is described in this book as well as in this 12th century tome, The Jewel <laughs> Ornament. So both of, these, uh, both of these books describe the kinds of qualities you're looking for, this compassion, learning, and, uh, and uh, qualities and uh, tell you to look out for people whose actions and words do not match. That's the main, um, the, the main warning that they warn us about, are teachers who say one thing but do another. And we're all like that. We're all contradictory like that in our lives. We all have said one thing and done another. Mm-hmm. And so we have to be honest with ourselves about who we've been and uh, and what we've done as uh, as students and teachers, and to find ways to continuously uh, make ourselves better. So I love that, and I, I didn't know that about the Dalai Lama. It's nice to know that teachers like that have such a big audience talk about that publicly too, because I think that's hugely important. Just getting it out into the world, and I, I definitely feel like people are more. Um, aware now of it because of uh, probably because of the internet and social media, things spread a lot quicker in terms of information. Uh, yeah. What's interesting uh, in, you know, I don't know if it's in all Buddhist traditions too, is also this concept of um, the Samaya vow and how a student's practice can positively or negatively affect a teacher. Because I remember. I remember something Kempo Rinpoche said when he recovered from cancer. I read this later. I didn't even know he'd had cancer. I kind of lost touch. And then he he was thanking his students for their Samaya vow that that had helped him to overcome his illness. And it, it, it really, it, you know, it touched me, but I knew he really meant it. Like I, I knew it wasn't just a... So talk about the idea of how we we as students, we may not, we're not enlightened yet, but that we actually can benefit the teachers as we practice? I think um, the, I I don't fully understand the topic. So I of Samaya, so I can just basically say, I'm not necessarily the best person to talk about this, but let me tell you what my experience has been. Um, 
my experience goes all the way back to when I first became a student of Kemba Kartha Rinpoche. And he said that because the relationship between the teacher and the student are, is so close, the relationship is so close that what the student does has an impact on the teacher and what the teacher does has an impact on the student. And so, um, and in fact, um, I'm gonna go back a little farther um, to uh, a teaching that the previous Kalu Rinpoche gave, where he said that um, the, um, the, the teacher's um, compassion is, is like a hook and the student's uh, devotion is like a ring or the student faith and devotion is like a ring. And when the two meet, he said, the teacher takes us from happiness to happiness and then to enlightenment. That's the way he, he put it. And, um, and he said that, um, that this is why it's good to, once you've examined a teacher and determined that the teacher is appropriate, that you then try to practice the teacher's advice for you. And that as you do that, that forms your, uh, your, uh, your faith and devotion. There are three kinds of devotion. See if I can remember them off the top of my head. Uh, they're, they're in jewel ornament. But anyway, <laughs> um, the first is, um, is uh, like admiring faith where you admire someone and you say, wow, I'd love to be like that. That's admiring faith. But it, it doesn't have a lot underneath it. It's just, wow, you know. And then the second one is this uh, like uh, uh, aspiring faith. Like I want, I actually want what they have. It's not just I admire them, but wow, I'd love to have what they, I really want to work on having what they have. And then the third one is, I can't remember the name of the third one, but the third one is this, um, oh, it's uh, the faith of certainty which means that we have actually worked the instructions given to us. And then we, we have real, now we are really anchored in that. And when we have that kind of faith toward a teacher, it, when we practice, this is what Kemble Carther Rinpoche told me. He said, when we practice, the teacher benefits automatically from our practice. So when a teacher teaches us and we begin to improve as individuals, that actually carries through and it benefits the teacher as well because it was their teachings that brought about the change in us. Mm -hmm. And our effort then benefits the teacher's longevity, health, and so on. And so he basically, uh, that's why Kemble Carthur and Bache, after um, the, uh, his uh, cancer scare a number of years ago, uh, was able to, um, to recover from that. He also had, um, he also had a, a health scare uh, in the 1990s, somewhere in the uh, early 1990s, when he had a very bad bout of bronchitis. And he recovered from it. They were quite worried about him because he had some lung issues from having had tuberculosis as a young person. And, and so he said everybody who prayed for him actually helped his longevity. And he thanked us for that. So I'm feeling that, that when the teacher is a kind of an amazing person themselves, that they then benefit the students automatically. And then the students benefit the teacher automatically because of the closeness of this relationship. This relationship is very close. The two closest karmic relationships, it is said in the teachings, are your parents and children and your teacher because the teacher's words and actions are so impactful toward our path to awakening. That's why their relation, our relationship with them is so impactful. Whereas the other karmic relationships with our children and uh, our parents are impactful because of the closeness of our relationship to them in this life. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the, uh, that's the, the genesis of uh, the, um, the, the Buddhist culture's emphasis on taking um, good care of the relationship with your parents and your children. Doesn't mean that you allow bad behavior, but it does mean that you uh, care for them and do your best. Wow. 
So, um, so when uh, a teacher that is important in one's life dies, uh, what happens in your mind, since you have gone through this recently, what happens in your mind with that relationship? A lot of this depends upon what we think enlightenment is. If we think that enlightenment is just a, a deep state of meditation, then uh, we may just think of it as being something passive. But if we think of enlightenment as being um, dynamic and uh, aimed toward the benefit of others, so if we think that enlightenment is a passive something, well, then there's really not much that a person who has passed away can do for us or that they can do for us while, we're, while they are alive. But if we think of enlightenment as being a dynamic state that has the welfare of all sentient beings in mind, that's what we call the bodhisattva commitment in, in Buddhism, the, the commitment of the person who dedicates themselves to benefiting everybody they meet, potentially. And uh, that, if, if we think that it's a dynamic state, then that means that while they're living and after they've passed, there's no difference. There's no difference in their capacity to assist us. Mm. We may not be able to hear their advice in person, person to person, but we can think on and reflect on all of the teachings they gave us. Because there's this, um, there's a, a, a discussion in Tibetan Buddhism about the the outer teacher and the inner teacher and the most inner teacher. Mm. They, they usually say outer, inner, and secret, but I think the word secret it, 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 in English, <laughs> it brings up a lot of weird things. That's true. So I like to say outer, inner, and most inner. The outer teacher is the human being who gives us instruction. The inner teacher is our capacity to internalize their lessons. Mm. Because... There are moments in my life when I remember things that Rinpoche said to me. And so that's kind of like the inner teacher, right? Right. But the most inner teacher is our own inherent inner wisdom that we have not yet uncovered and tapped into. In Buddhism, we call that inner wisdom Buddha nature. In mm. other words, we all have the capacity. I say capacity. That's the wrong word. Potential. We all have the potential to become a Buddha because we have a mind that can know itself and can know itself completely. So we all have the potential for, for uh, Buddhahood, but the capacity will differ uh, sure. according to our karma and our habits and so on. But that most inner teacher is our capacity for awakening or a potential for awakening and our, and our inner wisdom that may not yet have been uncovered and activated, but someday might be. Mm. And that is our most inner teacher. Hey, someday we actually, we'll be um, able to rely on that one. We have but a not question uh, on our chat. We have a question from Dina. Uh, okay. Can you tell us about how aspiration Buddhist practice cause fruition of karma, which causes contact with the teachers who give us advice? Hmm. Not sure I understand the question. Try it again. Okay. It's, can you tell us about how aspiration Buddhist practice, so I guess aspiring causes okay. the fruition, aspiring faith. Yeah. causes mm -hmm. the fruition of karma, which I think you started in the beginning, you talked about, which causes then contact with the teachers who give us Got advice. It. Okay, thank you very much. I yeah, I, I do understand that. Um, this is this is this is my best uh, my best um, uh, attempt at at putting this is all in context. The teacher who said, "If you haven't met a teacher yet, you you find teachers by just doing your spiritual practice." What spiritual practice does is it creates an atmosphere inside of us of virtue. It creates an inner atmosphere of virtue. In other words, we know how it feels to be angry and to be unhappy and to, and to be 
jealous and competitive and all of those horrible things that human beings can do that are negative. We know how bad that feels, but we also know how good it feels to be generous and loving and kind. So you can kind of see the atmosphere you would rather create within yourself. And so meditation and prayer and, uh, and doing kind actions create an inner atmosphere of virtue. And that inner atmosphere of virtue opens our minds. And it allows us to see and be relaxed and to see things maybe we didn't see before. And that that will ripen, that virtue will ripen as coming into contact with beings who can help us. So that's, that's where we can make aspirations. We can say, may I meet teachers who will benefit me? And may I meet teachers whose advice will help me? That's the aspiring part. But when we do our practice, these two things come together and actually will. So I'm going to use my own life as an example of this because I was reading uh, books uh, by, uh, by, by the great uh, Hindu master, uh, Baba Ram Das. Mm. And in one of his books, he said, you know, the best teacher, he said, I, he says, let me be honest. And this is in his book, Grist for the Mill. It's a chapter entitled Lineage, if you want to go find it. In that chapter, he said, okay, I confess, I created my own religion. I took a little bit from here, a little bit from here, and a little bit from here, and I created my own faith. He said, but I don't recommend that to any of you. I, rec I recommend to you, dear reader, that you go find a genuine lineage master from a lineage that traces its, its uh, lineage back to an enlightened being, and then you study that to its completion. So I said, wow, what a great idea, but where am I going to find that? And, uh, and then two weeks later, um, I saw a poster. Hmm. And it had, um, it had, I don't think it had Kempo Karthrimpache's picture on it, but it mm. had his name on it. Mm. And I'm like, okay, I, I, okay, thank you universe. And, uh, and then I went to see him. So this kind of thing I feel happened in my own life because I put it out there and said, you know, I hope I meet someone and I really want to learn kindness and goodness. So I don't know if this, uh, if this helps Dina or not, but I really appreciate her asking about it. And I also um, uh, want to thank um, all the people who are, uh, who are wa uh, watching or listening to begin to think about their own, uh, their own uh, uh, lives and their own uh, path and how, the how teachers can help them. So. Yeah, and, and uh, I love that story. In my own experience, too, at the time I met Kempo Rinpoche, I had been doing a different, different spiritual practices. Um, I, I was really into Edgar Casey and I was doing these prayers and I do remember having the aspiration of wanting to learn to meditate and I forget, I must've learned that from Casey. And then I, 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 there was a room for rent in Brooklyn and the woman put that she was a meditator too. And uh, so I thought, well, that's kind of a cool thing. And I mean, it, I didn't really consciously realize all the connections, right? I thought, oh, oh great. She meditates too. And turns out she was a student of Kempo Rinpoche's. So uh, I do. I had had a different spiritual path in a sense that led me to the next part of it because I had like you. You're like, oh, that's a great idea, the lineage, and and so being then open perhaps to where the universe sort of takes you is also it seems like um, at least from my experience part of the process. Mm -hmm. Now I can I can understand that because I think that. Um, having uh, the um, having a mind that's open to ideas and having a mind that is open to the benefits of meditation is a great place to start. And then gradually, as we uh, as we work toward our own uh, spiritual path, then these other opportunities will uh, come up for us. And then we can use our guidebooks to guide us to teachers that have relatively more qualities than faults. And this will help us to begin to uncover those qualities for ourselves, as was mentioned in the 37 practices, when in reliance on someone, your defects wane and your qualities uh, increase like the waxing moon. So th that's kind of, that brings us back on that. But um, yeah, I, I, I feel as though we all have the potential to uncover our, our basic goodness. 
and uh, and our teachers, even after our teachers pass away, uh, those inner lessons that we have internalized, they stay with us. And in a way, they are our teachers speaking to us very clearly uh, in our own minds. There are, they are, their lessons are living on in us. Mm-hmm. And I feel in a way that Kempo Karth Rinpoche was unique in that he knew what teaching to give to each person. And he actually gave each person something really unique. And that now our work, now that he's passed away, because he passed away in 2019, and we miss him terribly, and we miss getting his advice on everything. But, but if we think about it, his inner lessons are still with us. And if we talk to the other students and we talk about our experience with him, then those stories will lead us to those little nuggets of teaching that will benefit us. And I do want to say one more thing about that. And that is that uh, in, the, uh, in, the, um, in the wake of the passing of Kempo Karthar Rinpoche, some of his students uh, led by... Um, his nephew, Lama Karma Drodul, put together a website called rememberingrinpoche.org. Mm-hmm. And people have started to tell their stories of Kemper Rinpoche and talk about his, uh, his impact on their life. And you can learn quite a bit about, mm-hmm. uh, about him through the stories of how he benefited others. So I wanted to let people oh, know that's that awesome. they can- they can check that out. Uh, we're on Facebook and on uh, on the interwebs uh, at at that address. I'm sure there are lots of good stories too, because I mean he 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 touched a lot of people's lives. He worked. One of the things that I really always was impressed is how hard he worked, uh, the long hours, and he was a good. Um, he could sew. I remember that about him. Which is, you know, you don't really, some of the, the things that he did, you don't really, and I remember him seeing him so and how he could often uh, outwork people in his 60s, uh, which made me think, okay, maybe there must be something to meditation that he can stay so focused, you know, that again, looking for the qualities and, you know, over the years kind of seeing, yeah, I wish I could be more focused or because I, I think sometimes two people may think they have to become a llama to mm-hmm want to aspire to be like Kempo Rinpoche, whereas if you just look at his qualities of kindness, discipline, awareness, wisdom, uh, these are qualities that that many people would aspire to. That's how I view it, because I, in my lifetime, I know I'm not going to be a, a Buddhist Lama, and I'm, that's not my path, but that doesn't mean I can't, I, I don't benefit from admiring the qualities he emanates. This is true. And and I think all of us have the potential to benefit others, which is the whole Bodhisattva path. We all have that uh, that potential. And Kempo Karthar Rinpoche, when he was giving talks, um, it was somewhere around 1997 because there was a all KTC, you know, because the, the centers he started were called Karma Takes and Choling centers. And so for they are called KTC for short. And he had a a meeting of all of the coordinators of the KTCs from around the country. And he said, it is the responsibility of the older students. And he didn't mean old by age. He meant it's the responsibility of those. He said, if you know one more bit of Dharma than somebody else, you are senior to them in that area. And he said, it's your responsibility to create the atmosphere for new people to meet the Dharma. And so that by being open-minded, by being good listeners, he said that most people who come to a Dharma center, they, they are feeling something. Sometimes they feel conflict. Sometimes they feel sad. He said, listen to what is going on for them. And he said, don't think you have to fix their problem. He said, just listen and then say whatever uh, brief and a heartfelt uh, bit of advice you can give. And he said, gradually, he said, if it's helpful to them, that they will, they will consider you of a person who they can, they can trust. And that person uh, who's, who really has their best interest in mind. So even though uh, the, the word Lama, La means, uh, it refers to Lana Madepa, which is a Tibetan phrase meaning unsurpassed. And Ma literally refers to mother, you know, the idea of not all of us are going to be a Lama, 
but all of us will be able to be that friend whose advice helps us to uncover our qualities. So we can all help each other mm -hmm. along the path. And earlier you were talking about people who say that in the age of Aquarius, we won't need teachers. And I think the problem comes when people uh, have uncertainty about authority and maybe some very healthy distrust of authority, but by that, that distrust actually causes them, it doesn't just like um, protect them from the bad ones. It actually also protects them from the good ones. It, it, it prevents them from connecting with someone who actually could help them. And so we have to have some humility about ourselves and know and admit what we don't know and, uh, and then be ready to have somebody say, you know, hey, you know, it would be better if you were like nicer to people and, you know, and so forth and so on. As Rinpoche once said, look, if you have a problem with one person, it could be that person. But if you have a problem with this person and this person and this person and this person, he said, you got to open your mind to the possibility it could be you. <laughs> and and so this kind of pragmatic advice, we would we would be denying ourselves this kind of incredibly pragmatic advice if we thought that we didn't need a teacher. I never forget Kemper Ibache, a, a gentleman. Uh, asked a, you know, we you, you get some people in uh, in talks and Dharma talks that they they know some stuff and they want to show what they know. And so this one a young man said to Kemper Mache, well, you know, uh, teacher, he said, if if what you're saying is true, this should mean that we should just let go of everything, including the Dharma. You should like throw the Dharma away, you know, that because like you you don't need the Dharma. You absolutely don't need the teaching because that's holding on to the Dharma is holding on to something. And Buddhism is all about letting go. And 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 Rinpoche just nodded and listened and nodded and listened. And he said, he said, I think I understand your logic. He said, let me see if I can say something about that. He said, by your logic, he said, if I got into a boat and started rowing across a lake and I got halfway across that lake, I would say to myself, you know, I really don't need this boat. I think I'll just walk to the other side. And then you get out of the boat and you try to walk on top of the water and then you sink like a stone. He said, this is your logic. And he said, so I think it might be better if you considered having the Dharma and holding on to the Dharma until you don't need it anymore. It's like a boat. It takes you to the other shore. You don't have to abandon it until you get there. And I thought to myself, wow, what an amazing answer. Yeah, I love that. I would say the same thing to folks who would say teachers are unnecessary. I love that. Now we have a couple of minutes. I wanted to um, let you speak a little bit about the monastery and where it's at just at the end of the show. And if you're getting close to opening and all of that. Sure. Yeah. Um, uh, two things. Uh, Kempel Carthur Rinpoche was sent to the United States in the 1970s. That's ancient history by the uh, previous Karmapa, the 16th Karmapa, to establish a Buddhist monastery in Woodstock, New York, of all places, called Karma Triana Dharma Chakra. Uh, it, it's right now, it is uh, as complete as it can be. Uh, it, they've got a residence and they've got a temple. It's a beautiful location. And because of COVID, it's been closed, but you can tune in to many Dharma teachings that are now being given on Zoom. And so you can check out Karma Triana Dharma Chakra at the at Kagyu, K-A-G-Y-U dot O-R-G. And so in our center, the Karma Takes Some Choling Center of Columbus, Ohio, we are coming up on the sixth anniversary of an arson fire that destroyed our, our uh, little old wooden church in January of 2016. And now six years later, we are getting ready to finish the building project. We were able to raise the $3 million that was needed to build a larger building because that was Rinpoche's advice. He said, rebuild it, rebuild it on your land and make it bigger. Mm. And so we packed a lot into a little urban lot 
and uh, and there's it's a three million dollar building, and uh, we're we're getting it's getting finished, and we hope to reopen it, COVID willing, sometime in early um, 2022. But of course, we are still collecting donations, uh, and this is Giving Tuesday, so hey, uh, on Facebook, uh, right? You can, you can do it on Facebook. You can give on Facebook, uh, and you can go to the Columbus KTC. Um, it actually, you know, Columbus KTC on uh, on Facebook and give today if you're if you're free, or um, and you can uh, also uh, give uh, by going to Columbus KTC all one word columbusktc.org. They have a donation button just like everybody else, so you can give there also. Thank you so much, and congratulations on on the the raising of the funds and the building. And thank you for coming on the show. We've run out of time now. Uh, Lama Kathy, we loved having you. And thank you all for listening all through the year. Uh, We really appreciate it. I will see you next year in 2022. So have a great December.